right, we are back. We were hoping to bring on one of our perennial favorites in this program, Dr. Howard McKinney. He was a toxicologist extraordinaire and, shall we say, a colorful character. We were hoping Howard would come talk to us about the snake venom convention that he recently attended in San Francisco. And yes, there are such things. And yeah, we do want to talk about that, but it won't be today. But let's uh, instead keep things on the lighter side, at least as we ramp up into our second segment and do one of our perennial favorites, the good, the bad, and the ugly. note that according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Fido, with the news that a chef in San Francisco has opened a farm-to-table restaurant for dogs, and it will apparently have a $75 tasting menu called Dogway, D-O-G-U-E, I guess that's how they're pronouncing it. The restaurant operates as a canine cafe during the week, serving $5 dog guccios and $15 savory pastries made with locally sourced ingredients. These include tripe and antelope heart. And in case you're interested, and I'm sure some of you are, San Francisco's not too far away, the Sunday tasting menu features dishes such as grass-fed filet mignon tartare topped with quail eggs and a microgreens salad. The Week quoted chef Rami Masarwe as saying, it's about giving back to your dog the way they've given to us. And although we are tempted at this juncture to play our annual Jingle Bell Barking Dogs, it's just a little too early this year. And although we certainly understand the sentiment of of some dog owners who are very fond of their animals, I have to say that no dog I've ever owned has brought me grass-fed filet mignon tartare with or without the quail eggs. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for truth in advertising with the news that at least... 20 Republican candidates and elected officials are now falsely claiming that K-12 schools are providing litter boxes for students who, quote, identify, unquote, as animals. This myth that schools are catering to furries has been cited by U.S. Representative Lauren Boebert, Minnesota gubernatorial candidate Scott Jensen, and many other conservatives as, quote, a growing crisis, unquote. But every rumor of a school providing litter boxes for students, wouldn't you know it, has proved out to be unfounded. And finally, we'd have to say it was an ugly week for measured responses. Because, according to this item, a British woman spared no effort to honor her deceased pet hamster. She, in fact, traveled 7,000 miles to Hawaii in order to scatter his ashes. Yes, reportedly Lisa Murray Lang, age 46, got spud six months before going on COVID lockdown in March of 2020. This was to ease her isolation and anxiety. And to further that, she began creating cardboard dioramas of famous sites for spud to explore. His favorite, she said, was Hawaii. Said Murray Lang, he may have been small, but he made such an impact on my life. To which she added, He saved my sanity, which is a premise we frankly may take some issue with. But anyway, how about some Hawaiian music, Mr. McMillan? (laughs) 
All right, here's an item from the oddball file. Yeah, as opposed to the rest of the show. But we, we, we have a thing for phonies, I think, on this program. We, we like to expose people who are fraudsters. And unfortunately, dear friends, we must cite an article from the San Francisco Chronicle about someone who passed away recently and was given a lot of reportage regarding her, her passing, most of which, it turns out, was faked. Note to the San Francisco Chronicle, Sashin Littlefeather was a Native American icon. Turns out, though, her sisters say she was an ethnic fraud. Note to the article, you might not know her name, but you've probably seen the video that made her famous. Back in 1973, actress and activist Sashin Littlefeather took the stage at the Oscars dressed in a beaded buckskin dress in place of Marlon Brando after he was awarded Best Actor for his role as Vito Corleone in The Godfather. Claiming Apache heritage, she spoke eloquently to a backdrop of booze of the mistreatment of Native Americans by the film industry and beyond. And indeed, it did create quite a hubbub. The article notes that presenters ridiculed her during the broadcast. Littlefeather told reporters that John Wayne had to be held back by six security guards to prevent him from rushing the stage and assaulting her. Which does raise the question, I think at that age, the Duke didn't need six guys to hold him back. In a taped interview that took place earlier this year with the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, Littlefeather said that going on stage that night led to her being blacklisted from the entertainment business. Noted, noted that as the decades passed over the years, she gave interviews and described a childhood of poverty growing up in, in a shack where she and her white mother were victims of domestic abuse and violence by her white mountain Apache and Yaki Indian father that made her story a very sympathetic one. As such, she enjoyed support when it was announced months ago that the Academy would finally apologize to her after 50 years. The death of the, quote, Apache activist and actress, unquote, as she was described in her New York Times obituary earlier this month, and in thousands of articles over the years, was mourned widely and uncritically. In one of her final interviews, Littlefeather told The Chronicle that she took the stage on the Oscars because I spoke my heart, not for me, myself as an Indian woman, but for we and us and for all Indian people. I had to speak the truth. Whether or not it was accepted, it had to be spoken on behalf of Native people. But notes the Chronicle, Littlefeather didn't tell the truth. That's because, according to her biological sisters, Rosalind Cruz and Trudy Orlando, Littlefeather wasn't Native at all. Said sister Trudy Orlandi, It's a lie. My father was who he was. His family came from Mexico, and my dad was born in Oxnard. Sister Rosalind Cruz agreed. It's a fraud, she said. It's disgusting to the heritage of the tribal people, and it's just insulting my parents. It turns out nobody in the family had any claims on a tribal ancestry. Should be noted that the author of this piece, Jacqueline Keeler, is a Diné Dakota writer living in Portland, Oregon, and the author of Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and The American Story of Sacred Lands. She also notes in the piece that the sisters reached out to her to tell their story because she'd been compiling a public list of alleged pretendians, non-Native people who I or other Native American people suspect or proved to have manufactured their Native identities for personal gain. Littlefeather was among them. And so she investigated to discover that uh, Littlefeather's claim of white mountain Apache heritage is false. She traced family records in Mexico going back to 1850 and discovered there were no Native American communities in her past. Yeah, it looks like the jury's in on this one. Sashin was a fake. A few months before her appearance at the Oscars, she'd been trying to make it as a model in the Bay Area and even got written up in Herb Cain's column. 
noted Kane. Sashi and Littlefeather, the Bay Area Indian princess and nine other tribal beauties, are sore at Hugh Hefner. Playboy ordered pictures of them riding horseback nude in Woodside and other beauty spots, and then Hefner rejected the shots as not erotic enough. Mr. Willen says he would like to be the, the judge of that. But you get a chance on that because after this Oscar appearance, Sashi and Littlefeather didn't appear nude in Playboy. Anyway, it's a strange story, but we couldn't resist mentioning it. When her sisters were asked if they thought that uh, Littlefeather's life or career would have been better if she'd never claimed to be an American Indian, her sisters said, well, Sashin did not like herself. She did not like being a Mexican. So yes, it was better for her that, that way to play someone else. The best way I could think of summing up my sister is that she created a fantasy. She lived in a fantasy, and she died in a fantasy. By the way, we, we do want to side with Sashin Littlefeather, or Debbie Cruz, which was her real name when she was born in Salinas, in pointing out that Hollywood was pretty wretched to American Indians. And frankly, John Wayne probably should have been slapped around backstage on, on Oscar night for the, the part he played in all of that. We still think things have gone a little bit too far in terms of political correctness when it comes to uh, sports teams. I'm not going to belabor this, but I did note, that looking at a summary of um, World Series participants recently, one summary noted that in 1954, the Cleveland Guardians had gone to the World Series. To which I would add, no, the Cleveland Indians went to the 1954 World Series. They weren't called the Guardians back then. And to which I would add, apropos of nothing, that I enjoyed listening to uh, some comedy on the Classic Station on Sirius Satellite recently. We certainly enjoyed talking to Greg Bell a few years back on this show about his efforts to, to bring uh, some of the classics of American radio comedy and radio drama to modern audiences. This episode in question featured a Jack Benny program where people were coming over to visit with Jack to listen to the World Series, which featured, in 1948, the Cleveland Indians. And their rookie, who was something like 42 years old at the time, Satchel Page. We like to stick in a plug for Satchel Page because our interview some years back, available at radioparallax.com with Larry Ty, was a subject we enjoyed very much. And the subject of his biography was indeed Satchel Page. All right, I want to do some science topics on this show. And in particular, we want to talk about the DART asteroid moving mission, which was a smashing success, pun intended. We've not yet been able to find someone who we can speak with about it. We're going to keep trying with our friends down at the Planetary Society, and I'm optimistic we'll find someone to talk about this with. So, as it looks like we're going to have to take a swing back into the world of politics. As of last week's program, uh, we were not able to find a good summary of the uh, January 6th committee hearings. We've since stumbled upon a few comments we think uh, are worthy of quotation. In particular, Dahlia Lithwick, writing in Slate, she said the committee built a devastating case against Trump, but the problem is now so very much bigger than him. The Trump movement has now been taken up by sitting senators, state election officials, and tenured jurists. The thought that Trump might run again and win in 2024 is terrifying. But it's even scarier that after the midterms, a huge army of election deniers, newly installed in positions of power, will start laying down the tracks for the next coup. 
The Week magazine noted that in the hearing's most dramatic moments, the panel showed previously unseen footage of Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer huddled in hiding on January 6th, pleading with governors, Pentagon officials, and Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen to send National Guard troops and police reinforcements to the Capitol. Schumer shouted at a Pentagon official, We need them there now, whoever you've got. Noted the magazine, No guardsmen, however, were sent for hours. The panel ended the hearing with a unanimous vote to subpoena Trump, which he's all but certain to resist. We noted with a great deal of sadness that several days after the conclusion of the hearings, there were headlines noting that uh, the committee still hadn't been able to deliver its subpoena to a Trump attorney because it appears no Trump attorneys were willing to accept it. I assume and I believe that since then they managed to get one to do so. God, I hope so. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch said the evidence is clear. Trump tried to subvert an election and seize power through a violent attack on Congress. He knew Biden had legitimately won, but he colluded with outsiders to stay in the White House anyway. The question now is whether Attorney General Merrick Garland has the intestinal fortitude to prosecute. You know, when we read that, we thought we need to go back. We, we had a connection recently to a spokesperson for the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland. Mr. Merrick, let's see if we can open that line up again, will you? Sure. All right, I believe we now have on the line the acting assistant federal attorney, in this case, Red Pullet from Rhode Island. Mr. Pullet, we have to put it to you straight. Uh, people are critical of the Attorney General for not uh, acting up to this point when the midterms at this stage of the game are only a couple of weeks away. Where does uh, General Garland stand on this matter? Well, sir, if there were any doubts about the president's actions uh, prior to the January 6th committee hearings, it seems that those uh, have been eliminated at this point. So our question is, are criminal charges imminent? Yes, well, how would the Department of Justice answer uh, critics who would say that uh, they're just simply failing to act in, in spite of overwhelming evidence? Well, thank you for speaking with us. That was uh, Assistant Federal Attorney Rhode Island Red Pullet. But seriously, folks, let's go over this. The Washington Post summarized very nicely what the January 6th hearing accomplished and perhaps some of the things that they didn't. Noted Philip Bump in the Washington Post, the hearings made a convincing case for Trump's culpability. They noted that there was no serious question that the January 6th insurrection was a function of Trump's rhetoric and his exhortations, but the committee's work flushed out the public's understanding of how widespread and how cynical Trump's behavior was. The article notes that they presented new important information about the day of the riot and the weeks and months that led up to it. The hearing raised Serious questions about other individuals and groups involved, in particular the Secret Service, which was not credible with the testimony they presented, um, bringing up concerns about the reliability of the Secret Service in protecting senior government officials. The hearing also highlighted a number of Trump allies who refused to answer questions before the committee but have been happy to talk to conservative media. I imagine they're talking about people like Roger Stone and Steve Bannon. And they noted that the committee collected evidence that folded into the Justice Department's probe. We'll have to ask Mr. Pullet about that. I got a feeling we'll be hearing from him again. But as I continue to read in this Washington Post summary, I, I had to say I was, I was taken up a bit short and stunned by some of the statements that it made. Under the category, what the committee hearings didn't accomplish, Philip Bump claimed that there was no smoking gun linking the White House to the violence, which caused me to wonder which hearings he was watching. 
And I think you, you're probably going to wonder the same thing, dear listener, when I quote from what he said. He said, this is understandably subjective, this, this smoking gun issue. Trump bears responsibility for the day's violence. It's hard to argue that. He stacked the gasoline-soaked logs. He passed out lighters. He suggested that a giant bonfire would be nice. But according to Bump, there's no video or record of him telling someone to start a fire. Really? Suggesting the crowd they need to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol was not starting the fire? And no, we're not sure why it is the Washington Post is backing off, pulling, pulling back its reins on this one and trying to give Trump some wriggle room. But evidently, they are. Anyway, we've been talking to a lot of people about some of these issues regarding the upcoming uh, midterms and the possibility of the Supreme Court validating this so-called independent state legislature um, formerly lunatic fringe concept, which is now moved to the center, or shall we say seemingly moved to the center, because it's still a lunatic idea. It's just that the Supreme Court may endorse it, lunacy or not. I'm sad to note that we were concerned back in in 2003 about the the course this country was taking and the ramp up to the war in Iraq, a war that was completely unjustified as regards the 9-11 attacks on America. If you're listening to us back then, and we hope you were, you would note that we kept playing Fredonia's Going to War from the Marx Brothers classic Duck Soup because it was plainly obvious that the U.S. was going to phony up a war in Iraq. They had to come up with some fake justifications for it, which, of course, centered on weapons of mass destruction that weren't there. Looking at the direction the country was going in back in 2003, a lot of people were concerned. A classic editorial appeared in the Sacramento Bee. It first appeared on July 6, 2003, and then was printed again, uh, was reprinted several months later. It was a piece by Lawrence W. Britt. It was titled, 14 Things That Fascist Regimes Have in Common. Now, in this case, the author was describing how he'd taken a look at Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, Franco Spain, Salazar's Portugal, Papadopoulos' Greek, Pinochet's Chile, and Suhardo's Indonesia. He was not including in that the United States of America of Bush-Cheney. But it does seem pretty clear that that's what got him on the subject. Anyway, I lost track of this piece for a few years, but it turned up again, what do you know, this last week. And I thought it was worth taking a look at it and reviewing some of the points that Lawrence Brent was making about what fascist regimes all have in common. I think what I'll do is cite these things mentioned back in 2003 and then try to comment on whether we need to be more concerned about them now than we did then or perhaps less. But actually, as I look over the list, I need to pause and sort of reveal the fact that I don't see any of these issues that are less of a concern now than they were 19 years ago. Let's start with uh, Mr. Britt's number one choice. What fascist regimes have in common is a powerful and continuing expression of nationalism from the prominent displays of flags and bunting to the ubiquitous lapel pins, and a fervor to show patriotism. And this was usually coupled in these various regimes with a suspicion of things foreign, which often bordered on xenophobia. I'd say that one is a lot more of a concern versus 19 years ago. Second, Brit cites a disdain for the importance of human rights. Noted the populations in these states were brought to accept abuses by marginalizing and even demonizing those who were being targeted. And although versus a couple decades ago, we're not seeing things like 
the abusing of prisoners at Abu Ghraib in Iraq. But then again, look at what they're doing to the immigrants down on our southern border. Children are being taken away from their immigrant parents. In some cases, I believe they were never reunited. This issue certainly hasn't gone away. Point number three, identification of enemies slash scapegoats as a unifying cause. Britt notes that the most significant common thread among these regimes was the use of scapegoating as a means to divert the people's attention from other problems and to shift blame for failures and to channel frustrations. Well, if you caught the recent Frontline documentary on Michael Flynn and how it is that um, Christianity is being deeply embedded with nationalism, um, well, you should check it out, dear listener. And remember that at the beginning of the Trump administration, they actually banned people coming to the U.S. from Muslim countries. Item number four is the supremacy of the military slash avid militarism. He notes that the ruling elites have always identified closely with the military and the industrial infrastructure that supports it, noting that a disproportionate share of national resources was allocated to the military. That certainly hasn't gone away. Item number five, rampant sexism. My first reaction to this one was to think that, well, you know, compared to something like fascist Italy or or Nazi Germany, women in America are not necessarily seen as second-class citizens. And then I thought about how, a few months back, Roe v. Wade got overturned. Anyway, I don't think I'm going to tick off every single one of these, but I think I'm going to jump to number eight, noting that the religion and the ruling elite were tied together. Britt notes that most of the regimes attached themselves to the predominant religion of the country and chose to portray themselves as militant defenders of that religion. Enough said on that. I'm going to jump ahead to the final item, number 14. Fraudulent elections. Noted Lawrence Britt, elections in the form of plebiscites or public opinion polls were usually bogus. When actual elections with candidates were held, they would usually be perverted by the power elite to get the desired result. Common methods included manufacturing control of the election machinery, intimidating and disenfranchising opposition voters, destroying or disallowing legal votes, and as a last resort, turning to a judiciary beholden to the power elite. I'd say, compared to our concerns of 19 years ago, this one is an exponentially larger concern. And you know what, Mr. Miller? We ought to try and get Lawrence Britt. We ought to track him down and bring him on the show to talk about this stuff. Sounds good. We should note that in 2003, the editorial looked forward to Britt's novel, which is coming out in June 2004. The 2003 editorial notes, quote, Lawrence W. Britt is a political scientist whose novel, June 2004, which is from Book World, published in 1998, depicted a future America dominated by right-wing extremists. Anyway, sounds like a guy we should talk to, and we need to do some homework in this regard. And finally, I want to close with an item regarding football, which somehow seems to reflect the times we live in. There was a high school football game in the Bay Area last week between Ignacio Valley High and College Park High School. The final score from last week was College Park 84, Ignacio Valley 0. In an interview with the Bay Area News Group, the Ignacio Valley coach, Ray Jackson, said, I truly believe they were trying to put up 100 points, man. After the game, they went underneath the scoreboard and they were taking pictures. Jackson noted that College Park was running gimmick plays on conversion attempts. 
They were called for four excessive celebration penalties, and they kept trying to score even as the margin got out of hand. Said Jackson, listen, man, they were running trick plays on two-point conversions. Come on, trick plays on two-point conversions? For their part, College Park, at least their athletic director named James Keck, disputed Jackson's claim and told the Bay Area News Group, we did not run any trick plays all game. It is never our intention in any athletic competition to run up a score or humiliate an opponent. To which you have to pause and ask, well, when the score stood, stood like 62 to nothing, do you think they might have backed off and you know decided they didn't need to score three more TDs? The coach over at College Park, Travis Rossidi, in his second season said, his team strives to play with class and respect. Adding he's got nothing but gratitude and admiration toward Ignacio Valley as a school, noting that his sister was a graduate, responded the Ignacio Valley coach, Jackson. He may have thought that what he was doing, he did with class and taste, but they were up 50 in the first half, and they kind of knew that we weren't at their level. Anyway, yours truly finds the whole thing kind of disgusting. Much less disgusting, but also sad, was the Kansas City Chiefs 49ers game, which I attended on Sunday. First time I'd been to a, a live game in many a year. It's been something of a family tradition. Uh, my folks were season ticket holders for the San Francisco 49ers dating back to 1956. But it turns out the current version of the team is, is a little bit hard to root for. I said to a friend before the game, I just hope it doesn't turn out to be, you know, 42 to 24 Chiefs. And in fact, it wasn't. It turned out to be 44 to 23 Chiefs. San Francisco has a reputation for the most fearsome defense in the NFL. But I don't know how you square that with the fact that the Chiefs averaged 9.1 yards per play on Sunday. Yeah, I know. Patrick Mahomes is something of a, of a phenom. I think I made a decision to quit being a fan. It's, it's, just, it's just too hard on the nervous system. I do want to note in closing that I, I don't disapprove of the fact that they're still the Kansas City Chiefs and not the Kansas City Space Cadets. We are pretty sure that, that if they look into it, it will not turn out that the Chiefs mascot is, in fact, a Mexican heritage. But we, we don't know for sure. We do know for sure that we're out of time. Our thanks to Bill Simpich for educating us about his fine legal work in attempting to pry loose information the public deserves to have. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, as, as they all are. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax, and we look forward to seeing you again next week.